Sam, come bring us the word. Well, good morning. I hope you're doing well. And as Brian said, we are going to pick up in Acts 17, um, verses 16 through 34 is what we're going to get to here shortly. Um, If you don't know where Acts is and you're new here, Acts is actually towards the back of your Bible. It's right after the book of John, and it's, it's right before the letter to the Romans. And before Easter, Brian did cover the first 15 verses of this chapter, and that's where we saw Paul and Silas in Thessalonica, where a mob set the city in an uproar and, and drove Paul to Berea, and eventually from Berea into uh, Athens, where we find him today. And so he's traveled roughly 230 miles by boat or by land. We don't know which one, but at the very least, it was a, a three-day travel by boat. So it was, it was a long ways. And he's lounging around in Athens now, and he probably doesn't have plans to stay here because we know in chapter 16, he received a vision of a Macedonian man calling him over to Macedonia. And so he just really happens to be here, and he's probably taken in the sites like the Parthenon and, and all the, the ancient Greek architecture and things like that in Greece, and he stumbles in to this amazing opportunity to share the gospel. And so today we're going we're gonna to look at this evangelistic encounter and this evangelistic sermon that Paul preaches to the Greeks. And so I'm going to read the first six verses. I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to start taking it in pieces. All right? So starting in verse 16, it says, Now while Paul was at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? And others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. Uh, We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. The grass withers and the flower fades. Pray with me. Father, I ask that as we encounter this passage today, uh, that you would soften our hearts, and that you would give us ears to hear your truth, and that you would give us eyes to see the beauty of this truth today. I use this passage to you know, burden our heart, specifically for the people in Manhattan, our neighbors, who, who probably think that we're mere babblers. And Spirit, I ask that you'll anoint my preaching and you'll use it to feed and edify us today and to ultimately glorify Jesus in our everyday lives here. So, Lord, move in us. Make us more than hearers of your word, but doers. And people who do because we're in love with you and we're motivated and rooted in the grace that your Son provided for us at the cross. Amen. So as, as we begin looking at this passage, the, the first thing that I really want to highlight right up front is the happenstance nature of Paul's arrival to Athens. I mean, I've already kind of alluded to this, but, but the way Paul arrives tells us a little bit of something about his motives. Right? He didn't go to Athens 
to do ministry. That, that it wasn't on the docket. Like when the Hardys and I, and I sit down and we have a staff meeting, right, we don't plan for an angry mob to drive us from one side of campus to the other so we can get into a, an evangelistic encounter, right? That, that's not what happens. And so that's not why Paul has ended up here. He was forced out of Berea by the angry mob. And as verse 16 says, he was waiting for them. And then them would be Luke and Silas at Athens. And so it's just interesting that one of the most dynamic evangelistic sermons that we encounter in the book of Acts was completely unplanned from a human perspective. Right? This, this entire evangelistic encounter in Athens happened as Paul was merely living life like keeping his head above water and, and keep moving forward. And it's as Paul's strolling about the city that it all begins to happen. Right? That's when his, as verse 16 says, his spirit was provoked within him. And, and commentators say that this word provoked, it, it means to stimulate, especially in the sense to irritate or provoke or to stir to anger. It, it's a visceral response. Um, much like you've probably seen a, a young child have towards another young child when they took its, his, his or her toy, right? It's that instant anger that they feel or how I now feel when I have to drive in traffic after living in Manhattan for a few years, right? It's, it's that, that, that in your gut type of thing. And, and this word was actually used in, in medical situations for epileptic fits and seizures. So it's, it's something that is deep. And I don't know what it is in your own life that, that causes you to pound the desk and weep, right? Because you're feeling anguish or pain as you look out. But I, I hope it's something, you know, when, when you look out at the world, I hope that you're not completely numb. And I hope that you can sympathize with Paul over something. Maybe it, it would be like the, uh, the orphans and the lack of adoption in our society or the tragedy of abortion, or sex trafficking, or any of the injustices that we see in this world. I, I, I hope there's something that, that moves you in the guts, like Paul has moved in this passage. And, and what we'll see here is, is that what moves Paul, right, the rest of verse 16 there, is, is, that, is that he saw the city was full of idols. Right? It, it's what Paul saw as he looked out in the world, that burdened his heart. As he's touristing around Athens, he, he sees the, just the sheer lostness and hopelessness of the city. Now, one Greek satirist of the time would say that, that in Athens, it was easier to find a god than a man because the idolatry was so bad that, that it was just everywhere. And, and as Paul takes it in, He's just burdened, and he knows and he senses that he, that he has to act. He, he's burdened by the need of Athens, and, and that prevents him from merely remaining a tourist there. And so we see it, it stirs him into action, and he begins, right, right there at the beginning of verse 17, he begins reasoning, and he reasons with three people, and, and he starts laying out who Jesus is. And Luke's clear that, that he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. He's, he's preaching the whole Christ. 
He's not skimping on the, the hard parts of Jesus. He's, he's proclaiming Christ. And, and the fact that we see that he's reasoning, it means that he's laboring to make Jesus plain to them. He, he wants them to understand who Jesus is. And, and we see three, three groups of people that Paul ends up interacting with, right? We see the, the Jews, the devout people, right? The religious of the day. We see the common marketplace people, your average citizens. And, and we eventually see the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers approach him. We see the intellectuals of the day. And, and this is beautiful because Luke, the author of Acts, He's showing us that the gospel is for all types of people. There's no one outside the scope of the good news here. Right? It isn't merely for religious people. It's not just for the commoner, and it can't only be for intellectuals. Christianity is, is for everyone, and that's why Paul's working here to make Jesus known. We see at the end of verse 17 that that Paul's sharing with whoever happened to be there. Right? Whoever the Lord was bringing into his life, that's who he was sharing with. And, and then we see there later on in verses 20 and 21 that these people, they're intrigued. Right? Verses 20 and 21 shows that the Athenians are open to hearing new things. And, and I think this is where many of our neighbors are, honestly. I, I think they're open. And, and just like the Athenians, they may be open to hearing new things for mixed reasons, right? Because they're just looking for something to fill their life. Yet the door, the door is there. And in this passage, Paul takes it. And eventually these Epicureans and Stoic philosophers, well, they take him to the Areopagus. And the Areopagus is a place in Athens where in the new philosophies, they'd be tested. It was, it's kind of like the Supreme Court for philosophies. And, and they, take, they take him there and they say, tell us what this means. What, what are you saying and why does it matter? So let's see how and what Paul shares. So let's pick up again here in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I'll proclaim to you. So here's the first thing we should notice about Paul's proclamation to them. Right? Before, before he even gets into the content, which we'll get to in a sec, he meets them right where they're at. Right? As, he, as he's walking about Athens, he saw their idols... And now as he begins conversing with them, he starts by sharing with them about their pattern of religious life. Right? He, he acknowledges that they're religious. And it's, it's from there that he begins to build a bridge to the one true God. And before I get to the content, I want to I point out Paul's disposition in this. The, the whole disposition of his message. There's never a point in this passage that I see Paul being rude or disrespectful to the people of Athens. Right? And when I say rude, I'm talking about a 1 Corinthians chapter 13 type of rude. Right? Love is not rude. It's kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. And when I say disrespectful, 
I'm talking about the, the heart's disposition that doesn't care if it's rude as long as it's right. right? Paul's whole message is tender. It, it's bold, but it's tender. He, he's meeting those people right where they are, and, and he begins with what they have in common. Right? He, he begins with their shared humanity. I mean, look at, look at verse 26, right? All nations come from one man. He starts with Adam. And from there, he begins to quote their own poets. He highlights the common grace that exists in their lives. And he just he lets them know that, that they bear the image of God. Even though they probably don't even realize it. That, that they're, they're like a, 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 bro, a, a broken down city, right? That points to the grandeur of that city or like a, a broken mirror still reflects light. Paul's pointing out the good in their life. And it's from there that, that Paul moves from their dignity to their, their depravity. He moves to their need. And, and that's where we, he begins to move into the content of the passage. And that's where we see him really start to contrast the God of Scripture and the idols of Greece. And, and I see he does it in five ways that, that I could glean from the text. Um, one, he contrasts God as the creator of the universe versus the created idols of Athens. See that in verse 24. And, and he contrasts that God is the sustainer of life versus idols that sustain nothing. We see that in verse 25. And the third way, we see that God is sovereign over all nations versus idols that control nothing. Right? That's in verses 26 and 27. And then we see that God is the progenitor of all human beings. Verse idols that can't provide life. That's verse 29. And then we eventually see him move to the fact that God is the judge of the world. Verse idols that have no authority whatsoever. And verses 30 and 31. So let's trace Paul's reasoning, starting in verse 24, as he begins to proclaim to them the God that they didn't know. Verse 24 says, so Paul's proclaiming here, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Unlike any idol in Athens, God is not created. God is the only being who's not a creature in this entire world. If I had a chalkboard, I'd, I'd illustrate this for you. I would I'd draw a big circle, and right below it i draw a smaller circle. And in the big circle, I would write the word creator. And in the smaller circle, I, I'd write the word creature. And, and then I'd, I'd draw a line separating them. Because there's no mixture of creator and creature here. And, and that's what Paul's just done. He's drawn a line between the idols of Greece and the God of the Bible. There, 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 is, there is no mixture here. There's a complete distinction. There's an otherness to the God of Scripture. There's a holiness. He's completely separate. And it's because he's the creator of all things. And that, and that leads right into to verse 25, where, where Paul keeps building his argument. He says, Nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Since God isn't dependent upon his creation, that means that everything that was created by God 
which is all things, is dependent upon him for life, for sustenance. He, he doesn't need anyone in the same way that a creature needs a creator. And he's the one who breathes life into everything. Right? The, the, the idols of Greece sustained nothing, ultimately. And, and Paul's proclaiming a God that sustains everything. And because he's the creator and sustainer of all things, he has the right to rule over all things. Which is why he moves into verses 26 and 27, where he says that, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. Right? Because he's the ultimate ruler and he alone determines our allotted periods, the very boundaries of our existence, and because this is true for everyone, both Christians and non-Christians alike, because of our common humanity in Adam, there's no one who can escape God's reign. No one. There won't be a single person that you ever encounter in Manhattan who isn't under God's reign. He's the king. He's the sovereign lord of the universe. And so that's why Paul moves, right? And he picks up in verse 29. And we, we see that from this, he reasons that being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, right? The God of scriptures isn't a God that we can form in our own image, he, he comes as he is, and, and he's the one who created everything. And we can't create him because we're his offspring. We come from him. The very fact that he is independent and completely sovereign all, over all creation means that we not only don't control him, that we certainly can't fabricate something in our life by gold, silver, or any aspect of creation that can replace him. And as creatures, we must interact with him in the way that he's designed if we're going to experience true sustenance and if we're going to live in this created world rightly. And, and it may sound a little dehumanizing to, to hear that like we're creatures, but it's not. Right? Our, our relationship with God is defined primarily by, by two things. Uh, the, the first is God's character, which is why Paul starts by explaining that he's the creator, sustainer, and sovereign. And, and the second thing is, is, there, is our ability to bear the image of God. Right? And that's why he, he relates to them. And, and there's nothing wrong with being a creature because there's nothing wrong with being human. As one author says, the whole Christian life is an apprenticeship to Jesus where we recover our humanity, which has been lost due to sin. Right? It's recovering our creatureliness. So by this point, Paul's critique of their religious lifestyle, it, it's, it's devastating, right? I mean, can you imagine if someone stepped into your life and just tore apart all of the most meaningful aspects? But, but that's where, what Paul has just done. He's dismantled all of their idols, right? God created everything. You guys have created your own gods. God sustains everything. Their idols have no power to sustain anything. 
God's sovereign over everything. Your idols control nothing. God provides a fatherhood for his people, and their idols can't offer an ounce of relationship. Hey, this, this is why Paul's whole argument moves toward verses 30 and 31, where we see because he's, he has the authority, because he is the sovereign, he has the right to judge. And so picking up in verse 30, you see Paul proclaims, he's like, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed the day on which he'll judge the world in righteousness by a man, that man is Jesus, whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Right? The, the biblical notion that we'll face God as a judge isn't very popular. I, mean, I, I work on a college campus, and it's, it's not well received. Yet, I don't think it's ever been well received. Even in Athens. But it's clear in this text that God is commanding everyone to repent and to worship him. And, and there really is a fixed day where Jesus will come again. And the living and the dead will be judged. And, and we know this is true because of the resurrection that Brian preached last week. So Paul's telling the Greeks that there isn't an idol in all of Athens that will be able to stand the judgment of God's holy character. So let's look at how they respond to, to the critique of their idols. The last three verses of this passage. Verses 32 and on. It says, Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We'll hear you again about this. So Paul went, went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Right, we, we see three ways they, they interact with, with Paul's sermon. Right, we see people who mock. We see people who are open to hearing more. And we see people who believe. And, and those are the only three ways you can really interact with the gospel. But I want you to notice that, that all three people are responding to Jesus. Right? They're responding to Jesus for who he really is. They, they aren't responding to a certain moral lifestyle or a certain denomination or ministry program. Their, their reactions come after Paul comes to the resurrection of the dead. So they're coming face to face with Jesus. And, and they're realizing that if, if Jesus is true, then they have to face a judge. And, and when you're standing in front of a judge, you're either guilty or innocent. Right? There's no middle ground. And this passage, it wraps up with, with Jesus being better than any idol than Athens and a call to enter into that hope, to enter into the resurrected life. And really, those are the only two options in the world. You either trust in Jesus or you trust in idols that your own hands have built. That, that's what this, this sermon is about. And so as we, we step back and we look at this evangelistic sermon, you know, 
I was, I was torn. I was like, how can we bring this into our own life? And at first I had 23 applications, but Leslie told me that, that was way too many. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. And, and so I, I've narrowed it down to, to three, three of the most important ones, okay? And, so, and, I, and I've narrowed them down to evangelism because it's, it's the scary topic in our faith, honestly. And so the first, the first way that I think we can really engage this text and bring it into our context is, is by just acknowledging that evangelism is necessary. It, it's, it's necessary for us because of what we see and because of what we sense and because of the message that we have to share. Idolatry is still a real thing. And if you don't know what our culture idolizes or what the idols of your heart are, um, Brian gave me this great illustration to, to help diagnose it. He, he, he told me, Sam, imagine if we just took all of the people out of Manhattan for a day and you were able just to tour the town. What would you see? What would you see and what would you think that this, this town valued? Right? It wouldn't take you very long to find Bill Schneider Stadium. It wouldn't take you long to find the university campus or the mall. And, and as you walked into the homes, there would be this odd square thing on the wall that all the chairs face, right, in all of the homes. And, and you would find these little square things with screens all over the place, right? You'd begin to see that what we really value is comfort and knowledge and power, all of these things. And I'm not saying those things are bad. I mean, don't get me wrong. All of those things are good, created things. But, but when we worship them over Jesus, they become idols. And because idols still exist, evangelism is still necessary. God still deserves to be worshipped. So we got to share the message. We're responsible for that. And Athens... It, well, it's not that different from Manhattan. So we, we have to recognize that. And, and the second way that I think we can bring this passage into our life is that we see that evangelism is a grace-motivated privilege. Nowhere in this text is Paul motivated by guilt or shame. Paul isn't sharing the goodness of Jesus because he wants to earn God's love. Right? This whole sermon is, is an extended diatribe on how amazing God is. It's as if Paul's saying, look, look how much better Jesus is than any idol. Much like a little kid who's, who's trying to do a flip on a trampoline or something like that. And it's like, look, mom, look, mom, dad, 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 look, look, because they're just enamored with it. That, that's what evangelism flows out of. It flows out of a love for God and a love for people. Not, not guilt or shame or fear. I mean, there's a deep irony there, right? That we often feel condemnation about not sharing the message that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Right? That's, that's a pretty deep irony. But evangelism really is a grace-motivated privilege. 
But we get to talk about the creator of the universe and how he sent his son to die on the cross so that we could be redeemed. And that three days later, he conquered death. That's amazing. And we get to share that with our neighbors. Right? That, that's why, as a church, we, we want to share the gospel. We want to see the gospel spread through the neighborhoods of Manhattan so that people encounter joy, so they encounter God himself. So we can't lose sight of that, that, that evangelism is a grace-motivated privilege. And, and the last application that I see, and it's, it's abundantly clear all over this text, but I'm only going to highlight one aspect of it, is that God is sovereign over every aspect of evangelism. God's sufficiency to save people is all over this passage. I mean, think about this. He used an angry mob to drive Paul 230 miles to have this opportunity to share. If we serve a God who can stir up an angry mob in, in Berea to create the opportunity for gospel proclamation all the way in Athens, that's a God that we can trust with evangelism. That's a God who can change hearts. Right? We serve a God who can use an angry mob to bring real people like Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris to worship him. Right? Love is the, the ultimate impetus or motive for outreach, and God's sovereignty is the ultimate foundation for outreach. I have a professor at Covenant, and he says, God is not a reluctant evangelist. God's still in the business of saving people. He still saves people today, and we, we can trust him to do that which means we can be free to share. There's an old dead preacher named Charles Spurgeon, and there's a story about a time when he was scheduled to preach, and he was 15 or 20 minutes late to the service. I won't do that to you, Brian. Um, I'll do my best anyways. Um, but because he was so late, his grandfather stood up in the pulpit, and he began preaching. And when Charles finally showed up, his grandfather quipped, um, my, grand, my grandson Charles is here, and he can preach the gospel better than me, but he can't preach a better gospel than me, so I'm going to let him preach. And that's what we have to realize, is that the gospel is the power of God to save. And really, we don't have to be an amazing evangelist to be a faithful evangelist. And we don't have to be an amazing evangelist to be an effective evangelist because God is sovereign. So if I was to, to put this sermon in a sentence, here would be my sentence. All right? There is no idol that can be crafted by man that is more satisfying than Jesus. So feel free, feel free to share about the sweetness of grace as you're sustained by grace. I'll say it again. There is no idol that can be crafted by man that is more satisfying than Jesus. So feel free to share about the sweetness of grace as you're sustained by grace.
pray with me. Father, we come as a family, and, and we ask that, that you would open doors for us to proclaim your good news in our everyday lives right here in Manhattan. That, that you would help us love and engage our neighbors as image bearers. And, and we come just confessing fear and insecurities about this. We don't feel adequate to be your messengers. So Spirit, please empower us to love our neighbors as ourselves. And cause us to share boldly and tenderly the hope that we have in Jesus. We ask for these things. In Christ's name, amen.